I'm Ed Adams, and you're listening to the AFCA Podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the AFCA Podcast. And on today's show, we're speaking with journalist and Oscar winner Van Lathan. I'll give you the rundown after the break. The AFCA Podcast is sponsored by Morgan Stanley Global Sports and Entertainment. If you follow entertainment news, you've probably seen Van Lathan breaking stories on TMZ. Van started with TMZ as a tour guide and has worked as a contributor in several spaces with the TMZ chain, including creating his own podcast, The Red Pill, and of course as a senior producer and contributor to the TMZ daily broadcast shows. Now, while at TMZ, Van actually became news after a confrontation with rapper Kanye West about his particular view on slavery. Now, the clip and discussion went viral, and celebrities, fellow journalists, and activists rallied to support Van's reality check with Yeezy. Since exiting TMZ, Van's trajectory has only been going up. He's made a ton of appearances on shows and podcasts. He started his own podcast, Higher Learning, with co-host Rachel Lindsay, wrote a screenplay, and produced two film projects, a documentary uppity, The Willie T. Ribs Story, and a feature short, Two Distant Strangers, which won an Oscar and an AFCA Award for Best Short Film in 2021. And to top all of that, he published his first book, Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation. Now, I had an opportunity to talk to Van via Zoom about how he made his way to Hollywood, the whole TMZ thing, and about what motivates him. Van, uh, welcome to the AFCA podcast. Thanks for being here. No problem, man. Thank you guys for having me. So I want to start out. Let's just kind of get this out of the way because there's so much I want to talk to you about. So talk to me a little bit about life after TMZ. What has it been like for you? Uh, As swell as swell can be. um, It's been really good. I think that um, while being on television every day, multiple times a day at TMZ was an amazing platform for me to get to know people. Um, uh, It was also a hindrance in many ways in terms of what you can do for the rules of, of the company, you know, you're, you're on an exclusive contract there. Um, then on top of that, you know, obviously there are certain connotations that come along the lines of being the quote unquote TMZ guy. So you have to work through those. And I think the freedom and the ability to express different parts of myself since I've been gone um, has allowed my career to grow exponentially in the time I've been away. Oh, that's awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Um, so speaking about that, now you're, you're from Louisiana. Yeah, of course. Right. So you went from one L.A. to the next L.A., right? Los Angeles. So tell me, what was that like for you? Talk talk to me about that, that move from one place to the other and and starting your career in that space. Yeah. So I was ready to leave. Like, um, I love Louisiana, as most Louisianians do. It's a very unique place with a very unique culture. But when I came out to L.A., this place might as well have been heaven to me. Like I saw stardust you know, around the hills. 
um, the beaches, the studios, knowing that this is the place where all the creativity that I've kind of um, devoted portions of my life to, to know that this was ground zero for it, it really inspired me in a lot of ways. Uh, leaving home was hard because you're leaving a culture that you can't recreate anywhere, you know? Like, it's one thing to leave a place and go out, whatever. Um, if I had moved to Baton Rouge, to, uh, from Baton Rouge to Atlanta, you know, a lot of things would have been very familiar. Um, but coming from Baton Rouge to Los Angeles was totally different. It's a totally different rhythm, a totally different feeling. But I embraced it almost immediately. I don't think I've ever not felt home in L.A. since I got here. Yeah, I was I was curious about, you know, being from the South. I'm from Atlanta. Um, you know, the hustle is different. The yeah. pace of the hustle is different. Talk to me about how you acclimated or was it difficult for you to acclimate? You know, it wasn't. I think it for me, I came here. I, I knew somebody. I had a friend that was living out here and I, it, I was such a nerd. I was so wide-eyed about everything. There was definitely a period uh, uh, that I had to acclimate to, but like when you're young, I was 25 when I came out here, you're just resilient. At least I was. Like I can remember, I never felt like, damn, I ain't got shit. Never, but I didn't have anything, right? Like I was in Van Nuys. Uh, The first apartment I had, I stayed with my friend Tommy for like uh, six weeks, I think. And then I moved out and I moved to this place in Van Nuys. The guy was renting the apartment, then renting the apartment to us. He was the guy who was renting the apartment was subletting it to us. Some he's a Russian guy, it was very sketchy. But I found it on, on Craigslist. And um the place uh was deep, deep, deep in the valley. Deep in the valley. And uh, all I had was a computer and an air mattress. That was it. That was, all I had was a computer and an air mattress. I didn't have anything else. Um, and I slept like that. And then I got a job. The guy who was my roommate at that at that place, that was someplace, me and him became friendly. We decided to move and get another apartment somewhere else. Um, and that kind of brought me back into the city. But I, for a lot of the time, all of the LA that people experience, like when they're going out to clubs and all of that stuff, that stuff was later for me. Like it was going to play basketball. It was coming home. It was going to work. It was learning my way around the city, uh, shopping when I could, you know, just, I was just here and I, but it didn't feel like a, like a struggle at all. It felt like something I knew I should be doing. Now, when you moved, did you have a plan? Like, I mean, a lot of people think they have a plan, but when you get there, there's a whole different environment that you have to kind of shift to. Is that what happened with you? Or did you actually have a plan and you were able to do it? Like, here's the corny answer, and it's going to be corny. Yeah, I had a plan. It was God's plan. Like, it was, I'm going to be honest with you. It was time for me to leave where I was. And it was time for me to do something new. So my plan was to come out of here and be van. And whatever I did, um, like commit myself to it, you know, man, I came out and I, some things started just working. I was able to get a job the second or third day that I was here. 
Um, I was able to meet people who were really cool and show me around the city. I think my plan was to write my way into whatever I was going to be in Los Angeles and just kind of figure that out. Um, and I stepped out on that and it, it, it just kind of worked out for me. It took a long time and it was a lot of work, but it just kind of ended up working out for me. Okay. All right. Um, a little switch on this, uh, coming back to TMZ. Um, one of the things I was fascinated about, you know, watching TMZ for years now, uh, and seeing you on the show is that TMZ really is a game changer in how we consume news and culture. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to know from someone who was actually in the room, who was one of the content makers there, what do you think its impact is in our culture today? Uh, I think the impact, I think TMZ represents, it represents both a natural shift in culture and one that it helped initiate. And that's the quickness and the on-demand uh, nature of things. In, in, in a way, TMZ has influenced Twitter in a very direct sort of manner. You go to Twitter because you want to know what's happening like right now instantaneous like when it's so funny when when it's election night and you watch cnn or fox if you don't have a soul or msnbc or any of those other places call an election if you're paying attention to what's going on on twitter you know which counties are reporting you know what happened it just happens way sooner tmz affected people's psyche um, by how immediately they needed to have their news. Um, breaking news has always been something that was uh, valuable in our culture, but because, but it was only valuable insofar as the news organizations were going back and forth between each other. Um, now you have a situation where TMZ is up against the culture. Because no one tries to break news as fast as them anymore. They don't even attempt it. You know what I mean? Um, but they, the office gave you the sense that something was always happening. That there wasn't a moment where something wouldn't drop. I remember, you know, I'm there and in the same span of time, there's Jay-Z and Beyonce on the elevator. There's Donald Sterling. Robin Williams passes away. Like, it's just something's always happening. And I feel like that's how people look at the world now. Like, we're just inundated with different happenings. We're living life between spectacles, kind of. Um, And I think, at least for people who are really into pop culture, TMZ helped shape that dynamic. Piggybacking on that, uh, because it is part of the pop culture and a big part of it is the paparazzi, right? And Vice did a segment years ago where they took a paparazzi from Hollywood and they uh, had him follow, sent him to uh, D.C. to follow politicians to see how that game would look and would it work. Um, And uh, the the paparazzo said that, you know, it's easy to follow these people. These people don't really care, but there's so much stuff that they're doing. People should pay attention to it. Uh, So my question to you uh, as a person who speaks about the culture is that do you think that there would be ever a space where 
something like a TMZ or like a paparazzi or some kind of immediate moment, like we we're just saying, um, would work for politics or, and more importantly, like the sciences, the way we treat celebrities. No, they tried it. Yeah. Yeah. TMZ, um, Harvey tried, he wanted to do TMZ DC. Okay. Um, they, he, he tried it. He was, we had a, uh, we had a guy named Colin. It's a fantastic cameraman who was in DC and he'd shoot all of these guys and we get all of these politicians, um, uh, out in DC, they'd be leaving. We talked to them and it became pretty reliable content, you know? Uh, but it just doesn't work in the same way. It doesn't work in the same way because, Number one, there's less interest to see those guys on TMZ. Mm -hmm. And number two, those guys are actually trained to deal with the media, to deal with the media, asking them questions that are probing and are trying to get to the heart of a matter. Celebrities are trained to deal with the media and how to craft their, um, uh, their persona. Okay. So when you catch a celebrity on on uh, Bedford or out in Hollywood and you ask them a question and they're not dressed to the nines, they're not, uh, you know, uh, they don't have their makeup on, they don't have their skin done, they don't have all of the stuff that you see them in when they're in a, on a junket, they're just being a person, a human being. There's something compelling about watching them have to either turn that on or punt on it, right? Either they have to become famous real quick or they have to say, I'm just a person like you. Politicians never, ever, ever, ever turn it off. They can't because um, most people are waiting to see some sort of failure in them. So if you ask them about something that happens, they're going to pretty much give you a, poli uh, like a, a political answer every time. That's what they do. Um, they bullshit people for a living. And so it was just less compelling to do it that way. And uh, maybe there'll be some apparatus for it in the future, but I know when it was tried at TMZ, it didn't really work. And I'm not saying that that's why it didn't work. I'm saying that to me, that's why it was, that's why it was less compelling to me. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm always amazed at how quickly um, politicians, Twitter feeds become news. So that was really kind of my fascination with it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Cool. Thanks for that. All right. So let's switch gears. Coming back to you. Let's talk about your projects. Um, so I had a chance to uh, listen to Higher Learning. Uh, really enjoyed it. Like You and Rachel are really funny and informative. Um, so talk to me about the origins of this podcast. How did it come to be and, and, and how did you settle on your format? Um, so the podcast got started after the Kanye situation happened. You know, I had a couple of opportunities to go work with a couple of different people. I was doing a podcast called The Red Pill. Um, shout out to Chris Morrow and Loudspeakers Network and, you know, all the guys over there who gave me my first opportunity at podcasting. But um, I started talking to Bill Simmons uh, around that time. Um, Bill Simmons um, from the Ringer Podcast Network. And we were talking about developing a podcast for me. And over the course of a couple of years, while I was still getting out of TMZ, we kept talking, we kept talking, and we decided that we would do a podcast with the amazingly talented uh, and opinionated, smart Rachel Lindsay. You pair us together, and we figure it out. 
So Rachel and I sat down, we figured out a name, we figured out how we wanted it to be. The podcast isn't going to be a podcast that's the NPR politics podcast, but it's also not going to be a podcast that's going to be uh, another shooting the shit, let's just talk about some bullshit podcast. Uh, we want it to be reflective of our personalities. And so we just tinkered with it until we got to where we are now. And to be honest with you, we're still tinkering with it, but I'm happy it's doing so well. And I'm happy that we have the opportunity to uh, to connect and talk about things like that twice a week. Awesome. So one of the things I find interesting about your show is that it is the 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 length of it. It feels like like a morning or drive time show, right? Yeah. Is, is was that something that kind of happened organically, or was that always the plan? Um, it happened organically. Look, I'm not a fan of the three hour podcast. I know that uh, a lot of the hip hop podcasts that we love, and they they're so good. Drink Champs is so good. Uh, New Rory and Mall is so good. Uh, what DJ Academics does is so good. And those are really long interviews, brilliant idiots. They're so good. Those are really long interviews. Um, But I want to hit topics, give people a little funnies and let them get on with their day. You know, Um, and also when your podcast isn't interview based, then like we had an interview with Amber Rose and it was long. The interview itself was like an hour long. When you're sitting in front of somebody and you're talking to them, you want to make it worth their while to have come out to your place. So you have a tendency to do a longer interview. But when it's just me and Rachel going through, like we want to hit everything, give people a complete wrap up of of what's going on in the world and um, how we feel about it and what they might need to know about it and then get out. So 130 seems like a really, really, really good time. If we really saucy, if we really feel in ourselves, we could do 145. If uh, if we do two hours, the wheels have fallen off of the wagon. But uh, one thirty is where we want to be with the pod. Okay, so switching gears again, uh, I did buy your book. Nice. Uh, I can't. It's, I, I can't wait for it to get here. I also bought the audio book so I can listen to it in the yard this weekend. Sweet. That's why. Get your coins, man. Get your coins, oh, man. So, <laughs> so I was reading some details about the book. Uh, Fat, crazy, and tired. And on Amazon, you have a quote saying you hate it being fat so much you found it harder than being black. Can you mm-hmm. talk to me about that and some what are some of the other insights people could expect from this book? I said at times it felt like it was harder than being black. And let me tell you why. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that was the way that I felt at that point writing the book. Um, because. I equated, I've done a lot of sort of equating my self-worth to how people look at me and not how I look at myself. And that was something that like writing a book actually taught me. It taught me that it's not an accomplishment to lose a bunch of weight. Um, it's almost like entry into a club, right? People see that you've done this and they go, oh man, wow, you're one of us now. How proud. We're proud of you. Now you're one of us normal people. Before you were on the outskirts, the dregs of society, but now you're one of us. Ah, we're so proud that you were able to do that. Um, and of course, there are other people who are just celebrating the fact that you did something that you wanted to do. But a lot of times there's some toxicity in why we celebrate people that have lost a lot of weight. And I think there was a lot of toxicity in why I celebrated so much about myself. Um, there's a space for Black people, even if it's the space that we make, right? So uh, America doesn't make space for Black people. We've had to make our space, right? Getting there, elbows, 
shoulders, throw some bows, whatever we got to do. But in our communities, in our homes, we make space for each other. We need to do a better job of it. Brothers need to do a better job of making space for sisters. We need to do a better job of making making space for our uh, brothers and sisters in the LGBT community. But we make space for each other. So what community is? There sometimes feels like there's not a place in America that makes space for fat people. That, as a matter of fact, that uh, people who are overweight, fat, obese, whatever you want to say, that the real reason why people are mad at them is because they're taking their space up. You know what I mean? So they're encroaching upon their space. They're encroaching upon their space on buses, on trains, in the home. They're taking away their space by eating too much food. They just you're you feel sometimes like a constant burden. You know that when the jokes start flying, you're the easy target. And that doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It feels like that. It feels mm-hmm. like no refuge. And a lot of times, um, as black people. Our legacy and our history in America is uh, has been what it has been here for so long. And our very uh, visage sometimes is used as the symbol of American dysfunction by those who would tell lies about us that we oftentimes don't ever want to equate any struggle that other people who are Black might be going through. So the reason why I was saying that is sometimes... Um, you know, I'd be around a whole bunch of brothers and sisters and every I'm and I'm the fat guy even in that room. I'm the fat guy in that room. You're the fat guy in that room if that's how you feel. You know what I mean? You're the fat guy in that room if that's how you're made to feel. Uh so you know, America is hard enough, but being black and is always hard. Black and gay, black and fat, black and broke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Black and pregnant. You know what I mean? Like uh, mm-hmm. any of those things. So um, I just thought, you know, at, at times, you know, I was in rooms where I felt like yeah, I'm around everybody else, but, you know, I'm still the fat guy. So it seemed like it was there was no place for me to go. So what are some of the are there lessons or how how is the book structured? Um, is it inspirational? Like, what is it? The book is structured as an examination of all of these different things. It goes through okay. chapter after chapter, section after section. There's a section about unlearning. Um, there's a section about my background because for me to understand how I allowed my weight to balloon the way that it did when I was at my biggest size, because so it's 370 pounds, um, I had to understand for myself, and this is something that I did when I was in California, I had to understand for myself how there was a predisposition for that for me. Not because of genetics, but because of environment. I come from a place where people like to sit and eat. That's what we do. And there are a lot of lessons that I learned about food um, that were inherited lessons. So for me, uh, it's important for me to let people always, or to encourage people always, should I say, to be gentle with themselves. Hmm. People are not gentle with themselves anymore. And some of the messages that we get don't have anything to do with being gentle. You know, Beyonce, a lover to death. Break my soul comes on. Beyonce, like, I just quit my job. Beyonce, come on, man. I love you, man. The one line that always comes up. I love you. <laughs> I love you so much, man. You can't. No. 
You can't be telling people that. No, no, no. You can say, like, I feel like I just quit my job. You can say, like, I want to quit my job. But these motherfuckers need to go to work. All right? You know I mean? <laughs> we need to, you know what I'm saying? Like, we need to, you know, come on, man. Don't look, don't we need let, to ask for a raise. That's what we should yeah, be doing. Well, hey, I just asked for a raise, <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. we, so we need to be, we need to be gentle when we're thinking about, you know, how people view themselves in their lives. Um, and so me exploring the relationship that I have with food, best with my mother, my father, where I come from, it's just an understanding, seeking to understand and not just blame myself for, for letting myself go, as people would say. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that, man. I appreciate it. Um, switching gears again. Uh, saw uppity. Nice. Really enjoyed it. And um, it was really interesting uh, seeing Willie uh, on stage and discussing it. So talk to me about the project, how you got involved in it. Um, I got involved in it because Adam Carolla, uh, a guy who is a controversial figure, for sure. Um, Adam Carolla and I do not agree on politics. Adam Carolla and I do not agree on even humor sometimes. But for some reason, whatever, uh, he is he's really into cars. He's really into racing. He wanted to tell the story of the first black driver in NASCAR history. Excuse me, not NASCAR history. The first black driver to drive the 8500. Okay. Um, And it's an amazing story. Um, And Adam asked, uh, Adam reached out to me and Adam asked if there was a way. I give him a lot of credit for this. I give Adam a lot of credit for this. Adam asked if there was a way um, to bring me onto the project to make sure that the the uh, project was um, had cultural integrity to it, and that Willie was re- respected and um, and uh, and uh, and featured in the right way, you know, and that people understood what the point of the movie was. The point of the movie was to tell the story of a guy who had overcome tremendous obstacles and tell the story of a guy who had done it all with his talent, his guile, and his heart. Um, And Adam didn't feel like that story should be told without some black faces. And you know, say what you want about him. And you can't say a lot of those things. He, that was important to him. So uh, the same way, the same, I did the same thing to everybody that with Adam that I do with everyone. You go get me, I go get Nick. That's how it goes. You come to me, you say, Van, I want you to work on something. I go and I get Nick May. And I say, okay, well, Nick's got to work on this too because Nick actually is the one who knows how to do stuff. <laughs> so so uh, I went and got Nick. They uh, That was the first thing we did together and we were executive producers on it. I think it came out pretty well. Um, I don't anticipate making anything with Adam in the future, but I enjoyed uh, making uppity, and I think it was a great experience for both him, me, Nick, and everybody else that was involved. Now, before the project, were you a follower of NASCAR and, and car racing? And, like any car, it was Indy car. Uh, no, not really. Um, I, I was a follower of it in terms of, um, you know, when you're watching sports in the back of the day, it's Joel Schumacher won this, and Jeff Gordon won this, and uh, Richard Petty, and Jeff Gordon, and, um, you know, all of those different guys, Dale Earnhardt Jr., who, you know, all of these guys that if you're a sports fan and you're a, a person that likes to dabble in all different forms of information, I'd have what, what what would be described as a surface knowledge of it. 
Um, but I'm just now starting to like watch a little open wheel racing and that's kind of interesting to me, you know, as I settle mm-hmm. into my middle-aged man situation and I get into things that just relax me. I just mm-hmm. come in and look at my dad and be like, yo, man, how you looking at this? And he would be, you know what he would say to me? Get out. <laughs> that's what he yeah, say. grown like, folks, grown folks, grown yeah, folks stuff. Like, why are you looking at this? This is boring. It's not exciting. He's like, I don't want exciting. You know what I want to do? I want to sit right here and just zone out and watch this. So how about this? You get your ass out there and have some excitement out there cutting the grass. And that's how life would go. And so and so now I'm to that point to where I can actually get into F1 because I'm just sitting down there, turning my brain off, watching the car zoom around. And at the end, it's very exciting. So, But then, no. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, I was going to ask you a question about racing, but we'll, we'll, we'll table that one. Cause I was, I was curious really about there's so many now, now we're seeing so many young black men and women who are getting into the game. And I was curious about your, your take on how, because of NASCAR's push for diversity, uh, we're starting to see people show up and race. Um, I think, Look, I think it's great. I have to be honest with you. I don't care. All right. Well, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. If that's what they want to do, fine. Yeah. I the with the amount that I care about NASCAR, it could be all white people, and I will watch it like it was National Geographic. I don't really care. There only like there are things that I care about having diversity in. Mm -hmm. I care about having diversity in Congress. Care about having diversity in Hollywood so little black kids have their stories and see themselves. Mm-hmm. Care about having diversity on the USA swim team because they think we can't swim. It's a lie. Mm-hmm. Don't care about the diversity in NASCAR. It could be all white. They could have it. Now, if there's some kid somewhere that's black and wants to drive NASCAR and couldn't do it before, I'm happy for him. I'll support him. But I can't say that I care that much. I'll be honest with you. It's, it's, it's no, that's fair. There's certain things we got to let white people have. Like, we can't fight for diversity and everything. I'm going to be honest with you. There's certain stuff, we just got to let the white people have it. River dance, white people can have that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, like, certain meats. You know what I mean? Like, I don't need diversity in elk burgers. You can have all the elk burgers you want. Like, NASCAR, you can have that. Death metal. Like really super hard rock, like don't need diversity. You can have it, and NASCAR is one of those things we just gotta let white people. White people can have that to me. Now I gotta call my friends. Like, get your kids out of lacrosse. Get them out. Hey, that's different. Let me tell you why. (laughs) Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. All right, all right. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about. They can't have lacrosse. They can't have. Oh, they can't have lacrosse. Nah, they can't have lacrosse. That's different. You know why? Why? Because one of the greatest lacrosse players of all time, Jim Brown. True. Jim Brown was a fantastic athlete, two sports, football, lacrosse. When you look at lacrosse, we should be dominating lacrosse. That's just an extra bag. The sports that they can't have, golf can't have it. They can't have golf because we've seen what we can do. It's an extra bag there. Can't have it. You know what I'm saying? I don't mm-hmm. need brothers getting in car wrecks, NASCAR stuff, golf, lacrosse, tennis. 
Can't have those. Because those sports, to be honest with you, were country club sports. And we got to come get those. So those, they can't, the lacrosse is cool. They can't have lacrosse. All right, all right. I'll keep, I'll, I'll keep my words to myself then. Kids are safe. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So let's talk about um, your other project, Two Distant Strangers, uh, which won an Oscar. So congrats. Yay. Thank you. Yeah. So talk to me about how you got involved in that project, because it seems like watching your career and reading about you, you you found so many gigs and niches where you have found your way. And this one is such a different. The story alone is different. So I'm just curious, how did you get involved in this project? So that's what happened. Uh, Once again, Nick May, two dear friends of mine, Nick May. And the sensationally talented Trayvon Free. Uh, prior to the pandemic, we were saying, okay, we're going to start a company, do movies and TV shows or whatnot. We didn't know what to do. Had a bunch of ideas, throwing them around. Um, things are going good. Then the pandemic comes and everybody goes their separate ways. Me and Nick grew our hair out. It was disgusting. Trayvon is, 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 is holed up somewhere. Uh, and one day I get a call from Trayvon. And Trayvon goes, I know what we should do. The first thing after things opened up after the pandemic, I was like, what? And it was this is after George Floyd. He goes, what if we did something to where it's like Groundhog's Day, but with like a police shooting? Because at that point, it was Ahmaud Arbery. It was Breonna Taylor. It was George Floyd. It was like literally, and we just had to sit in it, right? It was stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, that's brilliant. And I was like, but there's only one problem. It's like, what? I was like, we have to do it now. Like, we have to do it right now. So at the same time, I'm in Trayvon's ear going, no, this has to happen. Like right now, his beautiful girlfriend, Zaria, is in his ear also saying, like, we have to do this right away. Like, we have to do it now because, number one, we have to make art that meets the moment. And number two, just to be honest with you, if we want critical acclaim for this, doing it in, in, in this year and uh, with the fact that there's not going to be a crowded field of, of, of shorts out there, this is the perfect pro- uh, project to get our, our creative, uh, our company off the ground. Nick goes, yes, let's do it. Trayvon goes, yes, let's do it. And then something happened. I had to put my money where my mouth was because we were trying to raise the money and it was a hell of a thing to try to do in the pandemic. So the first hundreds of thousands of dollars that went into that came from me and Trayvon. And then after that, we started to get people together to film and get people together to, to, to contribute. And we had a great crew of people. We had the, our partners at Dirty Robert. We had um, Sean Combs. Uh, we had Kevin Durant. We had Mike Conley. Uh, got money from a lot of people. Got money from some white people. Some white people gave money. You know, mm-hmm. they would rather not be known. Weird, but that's okay. Um, uh, and so, so, uh, and so, we just came together, and we never stopped grinding until the trophy came home. Nice, nice. So that's a good story. You got you, you got a lot of. Uh... My eyebrows went up a couple of times. You know, I want names, but that's okay. It's okay. That's not what this podcast is about. It's not about that. We're not breaking stuff over here. We're just discussing things. Right. All right. So uh, another project that you are, you wrote the screenplay for Good Luck. Mm-hmm. And from what I read about it, it, it's kind of a familiar story. 
uh, about uh, what it takes to make it in Hollywood. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say this. I would say about good luck that I, I wrote that, but that is completely the vision of Chanel Downey and Javanta Roberts, two mm-hmm. amazing, talented black women who kind of wanted to tell their story in this city. So that was more so about me taking the vision that they have along with other writers too, and then funneling it into uh, uh, um, a show for them. Well, you know, it's interesting when you think about some of the things that I, I read in a summary, um, there's a lot of sacrifice that is kind of, kind of alluded to and some of the, and some of the, uh, the summary. And I was curious about your observations about what it takes to make it, especially when it comes to Blacks making it, right? Do you feel that there are more sacrifices that have to be made, especially amongst each other um, in a space like this? Uh, uh, more sacrifices. Um, no, I think there's more self-awareness that's needed. I think one thing that America, living in America, does to 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 us it is it, it robs of our self awareness. It robs us of our, our understanding of who we are. Um, and we'll either start to view ourselves through the lens of what we don't have, or what we're gonna have, right, and not what we are and who we are. And when you come out here and you're getting ready to do this the first question you have to ask yourself is like, why? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Would you do it if you weren't going to make $50 million at it? You know, Would, could you come out here and could it be your job to make the next person $50 million? What if you're not the star? What if you have to make the stars? You know what I mean? Um, so what is it about it that you love? Uh, and I think in understanding that about ourselves, it helps us to build community because we're more self-aware and we're more, more open. The sacrifices are going to come. You're going to have to sacrifice. You can't make it in this game and not sacrifice. Hmm. Like you okay. can't, I haven't made it in this game yet, but I know that much. You haven't, you can't, you can't make it in this game and not sacrifice. The question is, do you understand yourself enough to know what you're willing to sacrifice? Because by the way, sacrifice is, is not always a positive thing. There should be some stuff that you're not willing to sacrifice. Like, you know, TMZ was, was like six in the morning to six at night. Harvey wakes up three in the morning, goes to the gym, swims, works out. Gets to the office, 515. Works till like five, 72 years old, goes home. It's not for me. Understood. Understood. My language. Not for me. Yeah. Not for me. Not sacrificing that much of who I am for whatever. So you need to understand about yourself what happiness is to you and what peace is to you. Define that and then go after it. And that takes self-awareness. So as black people, we need to look at ourselves a little bit more outside of the lens of what, what people say we are. Um, you, so I consider you as a truth teller, a griot in a lot of ways. Um, but I was curious as a person who speaks truth, uh, what motivates you? Uh, great question. Um, 
You know what really motivates me? The fact that it don't have to be this way. What do you mean? Like, this is all so wild. I was in Chicago, right? Mm-hmm. And we're doing a show called Hip Hop Homicides. Uh, 50 Cent producing, Mona Scott Young producing. The show will be out in September. It's about murders in hip hop. And already, one of the guys that I've interviewed is dead. This guy by the name of FBG Cash. Interviewed him out there. Me and him stayed in touch. He was my little homie. He's already been killed. This is going up in Chicago. It's going up in Jacksonville. It's going up in Dallas. All of these different places, right? Mm-hmm. And they're talking to these kids because this is who they are. The kids, uh, like they look like kids, like whatever. I say stuff like, you know, y'all don't have to do this. I know it feels like y'all have to do this. I know he got killed and she got killed and he got killed, which means that he got killed. He has to get killed. She has to get killed. and He has to get killed, which means that they have to get killed. You have to get killed and you have to get killed. Y'all could just stop. Y'all really could. Y'all could just stop. Everybody could Everybody could live. Everybody could get money. Everybody could do this. Y'all could just quit it. Y'all really could. Why don't you? The why don't you is what inspires me. The why don't you. The why. The why won't you stop. Is my thing. The why we don't, the why we fail, the why we're greedy, the why we're at war, the why. What's the point when we're we're here? Even like racism. Think about how wild racism is. You really must feel like you're better than me to live the small portion of time that we have in this infinite cosmos of atoms and gas to look down on me, you really got to be dedicated to that. Why? And I'm intrigued by that. And I'm intrigued by continuously like uncovering the truth and the, the contradiction and the hypocrisy behind some of the dysfunction that we see. Um, I want those dudes to understand that like those ladies too in these places that it's really not fucking worth it. Like it's really not, not even in a, we all in the same gang. You're headed for self-destruction, like not even in a after-school special type of way. In any way, it's really not. Mm-hmm. Dying at 24 because somebody else died at 22 is the, it's just not great. It's suboptimal. So I think that's the thing um, mm-hmm. that, that that gets me more. Wow. Okay. Um, so to that, I mean, cause that's, 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 that's deep, man. And, and I, I definitely agree with you. It, you know, I think people who are curious about the world, that is the big question, right? Um, why do we create this status quo? But at the same time, I'm also curious of people who will be listening. Um, you do bring a lot to the table. How do you balance all of that? Why with your joy and your happiness? I'll tell you. Hey, come here. 
I take right. time with my girl. I take time with my dog. And I just lounge and relax. After we get off this podcast, I'm mm-hmm. going to the hammock and listen to Star Wars stuff for the rest of the day. Get you know? out. Yeah, so I'm gonna. So what I do is I do all of this stuff, but then I take breaks, man. Y'all not gonna stress me out. I'm, y'all not gonna stress me out early in the morning. The first thing I'm gonna listen to in the morning is the word of Jesus, and then I'm gonna get like after I listen to the word of Jesus, I'm gonna go box, and then after I box and I'm nice and relaxed, my, my brain is open. Now we can get to what it is that I need to know. But you're not going to infect my mind with that when I first wake up. And when I go to sleep, I'm going to cuddle with the dog and with her till it's time to go to sleep. And cut it off. You know, so I think what everybody needs to do is whatever it is that you're passionate about, for whatever reason that you're passionate about for it, remember, you have to take some breaks. You have to take breaks. My dad passed away last year. I'm sorry. He never, he never took a break. He just literally went and went and went and went until his body couldn't go no more. So um, it's it's imperative to take breaks. But I'm hopeful. I know that there's a point. I know that we all mean, mean something. And I know that we all have something to say. So um, it might not even be my job to say it. It might be my job to provide the platform for somebody else to do it, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Last question. Sure. Okra and your gumbo. Yes or no? No. Oh, my God. We can't talk no more. I don't know what I'm doing. Really? Not really, bro. My mom makes gumbo. It's the best gumbo you've ever had. I can get people on here that would vouch for it. I don't want to. The important thing about the gumbo to me is the ratio to seafood and meats, the roux of the gumbo. Okra is like a non-starter in gumbo. You can have it in some gumbos and it's cool. I'm not an okra fan. But as long as that rule, that rule, you spend time loving that rule, putting your arms and your heart and your mind and your back into that rule. You come back, you throw some sausage in that thing, you throw some chicken in there. You know what I mean? Some crab. I'm getting a little bit out on the crab because the crab takes a a lot of space. It's a lot of work to get a wet ass crab up out your gumbo, but you gotta have some crab in there. I'm gonna put some crawfish tails in there. Come on now, mm. get out of here. Oh, all right, all right. Now look, now I'm getting a little hungry. We doing our thing. I'm saying okra, yes or no, it's fine. I'm not tripping. A lot of people, but if you're gonna if you're gonna put okra in your gumbo, cook it down. A lot of y'all, there should be no crunch in the gumbo. I gotta tell y'all this. There should be no crunch in the gumbo. Everything in the gumbo should be cooked down. Get the crunchy okra out your gumbo. Y'all disgust me. I'm sick of you. Get the crunchy okra out your gumbo. There should be no crunch in it. And it shouldn't be slimy either because it needs to be in that room. It needs to be in it. A amount of time. All right. I think we've made a common ground that okra is acceptable, not preferred. Yeah, I'm not tripping. All right, I just want to make sure. I just yeah, want to make sure, bro. I'm not tripping, but for me, the way the way my mama make it, it's no, it's no mm-hmm. okra in there, and that's cool. I've had people to put the okra in there, that's dope. But it's like you know, there are other staples that have to be in there. If you don't have no shrimp in your gumbo, obviously you're out. But there's certain things that you can put in your gumbo that I'll never speak to you again. Went to this one person's house 
Their mama put hot dogs in the gumbo, like cut up hot dogs, and she ain't had no sausage. I said, guess what? We're done. Can't eat this. Yeah, come on, man. Get out of here. Did you just like like put your mouth to the to the spoon a little bit and then just put it to the side or crunch up some like some uh crackers on it and just leave it or what you do? I told him it was against my religion to eat uh, hot dogs. I told him I was a seven day Adventist. They don't know that seven day Adventists can eat hot dogs if they want. So I told him <laughs> <laughs> they don't know nothing about being a Oh seven-day. my god. Oh black this baby Jesus. This just happened. I, I told him it was against my religion. That I was a seven day Adventist. Anytime I didn't want to do something, because my grandmother was a seven day Adventist, shout out to the seven day Adventist. Anytime I didn't want to do something, I would tell people I was a seven day Adventist and I couldn't do it. Wow. Dang, I wish I had learned that when I was a kid. So much stuff. So much stuff I got I could have gotten away with. But brother, I appreciate you. This was a great conversation. Thanks for all that you do and what you've accomplished. Uh, I can't wait to read the book. Uh, but brother, have a great weekend, okay? You do too. I'll say one more thing before I go. Yeah, I yeah. Hope, I hope y'all clip this and use this. Hey, y'all go to all these other award shows where these white people are up there and they're talking to y'all. That's cool. That's cool. Y'all go to all of these places and all of these awards. You need to go to the AFCO Awards. If you went to the SAG Awards and you hung out there, if you went to the Golden Globes, which I guess nobody's going to, and you hung out there, if you went to all of these others just hung out there, when your people are trying to give you love, go and receive it. Make time. Y'all looking a little bit funny in the light when y'all don't go. It can't be no schedule thing because you make time for everything else. Make time for the AFCO Awards. Make time for the Image Awards. Make time for every time that Black people are saying that they like what it is that you do. Go. That's for everybody. That was church. That was church. Right there. Right there. (laughs) 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 All right, my brother. Thank you so much, man. I'll holler at you later. Take care, man. Bye-bye. That was Van Lathan discussing life after TMZ and his many projects. Now, you can hear more about Van's take on news, politics, sports, entertainment, and just about anything else by checking out and subscribing to the Higher Learning Podcast. And I encourage you to check out his book, Fat, Crazy, and Tired, Tales from the Trenches of Transformation as well. I find it to be a great and inspiring read. And that's our show. Thanks again to Van Lathan for the informative and insightful chat. Now, did you know AFCA has other great conversations with people in the entertainment industry outside of this podcast? Well, we do. And it's part of the AFCA Spotlight series. And you can find all those great video discussions and so much more by visiting the AFCA channel on YouTube. And be sure to like and subscribe if you haven't already. So until next time, keep your head up. 